Man, it's so good to be with all of you this weekend as we continue our journey through this incredible unfolding story of God. Uh, I will warn you uh, this weekend uh, that uh, the passage that we are going to cover, uh, it is absolutely extraordinary display of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it is uh, an unfolding uh, beauty that is the reality of what this redemptive work of Jesus really does, not only in our lives individually, but also in our lives collectively. But in order to get there, we have a boatload of stuff to cover, okay? So uh, you gotta buckle up tonight, you gotta get ready, because we're gonna run through a tremendous amount of moving parts. And as we walk through all of those moving parts, Try to hang with me as much as you can because all of the matter, if we're going to really capture the beauty of this particular passage and what Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to demonstrate to us about the power and the magnitude of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its implications to us as a community of God. So a lot of things to get through tonight. Uh, Now, uh, much of the New Testament, especially in the early letters that went out, letters like James and Galatians and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and certainly with no exception Romans, a lot of the context that these letters are dealing with as they are written is the context of the great divide between the Jewish people and the Gentile people, right? So a lot of it is, hey, now that Jesus has come and since Jesus is not just for the Jewish people, the people of God, that Jesus and his redemptive work is for the world, we really need to start working through, talking through, thinking through the great chasm that exists between the Jewish people and the Gentile people because the work of Jesus overcomes that. And if if we're going to understand that, we got to understand how. So a lot of the New Testament writings uh, deals with a lot of this stuff. And, And the reason it does is because the chasm between the Jewish people and their world and the Gentile people and their world was enormous. In fact, I would argue that of all the chasms between people groups that have ever existed in history, the the chasm between the Jews and the Gentile world was probably the biggest, the most unlikely to ever overcome. And so just by definition, the fact that the work of Jesus uh, claims that it is going to reconcile that chasm in of itself is a giant claim. You with me? So, Uh, Why did this chasm exist? Why is so much of what we're dealing with, especially here in the early parts of the book of Romans, about this unification, this reconciliation, the way that we live as Jews and Gentiles in this new and redeemed space that we see as the early New Testament church? Well, that chasm actually makes a lot of sense when you understand Jewish history, right? So, So the Jewish people... Their identity as a people group was born in the early part of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. So right after uh, the the flood incident uh, leads to the Tower of Babel incident, uh, after those two things take place and God is dealing with a whole human race, uh, God does something quite extraordinary. In Genesis chapter 12, God goes and finds a man named Abram, and he calls that man out from where he lives and from the people group that he is part of. So this is after the Tower of Babel, when languages have been divided up, and there are now people groups developing, and he pulls Abram out of a people group, okay? Abram is just part of the human race, and he pulls him out. And he says to Abram, I am going to take you 
I am going to reveal myself to you. I am going to make some promises to you. In fact, here's a promise. I'm going to make out of you a great nation of people. And, and this great nation of people, I'm going to bless this nation. I'm going to protect this nation. And I'm going, to, I'm going to stand with this nation. Anyone who stands against this nation stands against me. And, and I'm, I'm going to do this. And, and in that, uh, Abraham uh, uh, hears God and, and God says some things about how this nation's going to be born. Abraham is very old at this point uh, in terms of his age. His wife is. They're past the childbearing years. That he has no son. And so he kind of goes, God, I, I hear you, but you know, the, I don't have any kids. And so uh, God goes, oh, no, 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 don't worry. I'm going to actually give you and your wife a kid. And, and Abraham goes, you know what? You know what? I believe you. And, and he follows God. So, out of that moment in Genesis chapter 12, the entire story of the Jewish nation is born. That is the beginning of the Jewish people. Because Abraham is called out, he follows God. God then in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis says to Abraham, I am going to give you this son, and this son is going to turn into many sons who will become the nation that I'm going to birth out of you, and you'll become the father of the multitudes. And he says to Abraham, from now on, because I'm establishing this unique people group out of you to reveal myself to them and protect them and keep them and and make myself known to them, I want this people group to be in a covenant relationship with me, a, a a relationship of promise. And I'm going to make these promises to you and then you're going to express the fact that you belong to me. And the covenant of circumcision was born in Genesis chapter 17. So we have Abram who is called out and chosen and said he's going to become a nation. Abram is then told to become a covenant people, a people belonging to God with the outward expression of circumcision. And that people group then begins to grow into a great nation. After the incident in, in, in Egypt where they are enslaved and they're set free by a man named Moses that God raises up, they go out into the desert and, and God calls Moses up to the Mount Sinai and he gives him the law, the Torah. And the law is God's righteous character written down on paper, right? It's like, you want to know how God lives, what God looks like, what, what God's righteous character is, here's what it plays out to be, and it's, and it's what righteousness is. Here's what doing it right is. So if you are the chosen people through Abraham, you are the belonging people through the covenant of circumcision, and you've now been given the righteous decrees of God so that you know how to be his children, then what's next? Well, you go live out those righteous decrees, the works of the law, and by living out in the works of the law, you then demonstrate yourself as the people of God. So you with me so far? Uh, we are the people of God. Why? Because we were chosen through Abraham. We belong through circumcision. We have the righteousness of God through the law. And we live in all of that as a people group. Beautiful, isn't it? Then there was the other people. Are you with me? And who were the other people? Not the Jewish people. Well, were they the people of Abraham from the chosen man? No, they were not the race born out of Abraham. So they are not the chosen people. Uh, did they have circumcision because of the covenant promises? Nope, they did not have circumcision. Had they been recipients of the law? Nope, they were not recipients of the law. And did they live by the law? No, they couldn't because they didn't have it. So they were the others. 
Now, here's the deal. When God called Abraham out, or Abram at the time, when God called him out, God added something to that initial promise that is often missed. I want you to listen to this for just one second. Just listen. We're going to go way too fast for you to follow along until we get to Romans. Then you can follow along, okay? So Genesis chapter 12, I told you that God called Abram out. Listen to this. Genesis 12, 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, now here's the key, right? Here's the key. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you catch that last little bit? See, when God chose Abraham, and made him belong, and said the rest of your, your offspring are going to belong through circumcision, and gave them the law, and revealed himself to them, and protected them, and was with them, what was God's intent? Was it to set them apart because they were special? To set them apart because they were unique? To set them apart because they would be the only recipients of any blessing ever? No. God was setting a people group apart from the world for the world. What do I mean by that? God was setting them apart from the world so that he could reveal himself to a people group, protecting a people group, showing a people group who he was so that the world could see what it was like to belong to God so that the world would want to belong to God. You with me? So they were set apart from the world for the world, but they forgot that. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? If for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, you had, you had Father Abraham as your heritage, right? You had, it was a song a long time ago, Sunday school, Baptist, don't worry about it. Um, you had Father Abraham, then you had, you had the circumcision, I belong, then you had the law, uh, I know what the righteous decrees are, and you had the works of the law, you live by those, right? If you had that going on, and the other people group didn't, and you were told regularly, don't hang out with them, because they will corrupt you, and then you will look like them, and then God will not be able to reveal himself to the world. So you've got to separate out, you've got to stand aside. Here's what eventually happened. Instead of saying, wow, we are the recipients of all these things as the chosen people of God to make God known to the world, it actually became this. Wow, we are the chosen people of God and they're not. We are the righteous and they are the unclean. We are the recipients of God's covenant promises and they are the dogs. They are the pagans. And, and those are the words they began to use for the Gentile world. Dogs, pagans, unclean, unrighteous. You just don't go near them. You don't walk near them. You don't talk to them. The entire thing. And we are separated because we are better than them. So, Two conclusions were drawn by the Jewish people over hundreds of years of separation. Separation intended for the world, but quickly becoming against the world. Here's two conclusions. And they're wrong conclusions, but they're totally understandable. Conclusion number one, you are right with God. You are justified, right? Made right with God through your ethnicity, your heritage, connection to Abraham, because you were chosen, through your circumcision, the covenant of belonging through the law 
you are a recipient of the law, and through the works of the law, you are fulfilling the law, so you are righteous. And because you are righteous and faithful, and you have the law, and he gave it to you, and you have the circumcision, and he made you his, and he chose you, you are right with God. So justification through what? Through works, right? And frankly, Abraham, obviously, he was righteous and God chose him. That's super cool. And so he is the beginning of that system. That was the conclusion drawn. Justification, justification through works of the law. Look at our story, right? Makes sense. Second conclusion. Since we are justified through the works of the law, who doesn't have the works of the law again? The Gentiles. So there's us and there's the dogs. There's us and there's the unclean. There's us and there's the pagans. And they are terrible, right? And we are better than they are. We are superior to them because God made us superior because we are awesome. It's a natural conclusion. Now, Jesus comes along, right? And he enters the world. And through his preaching and teaching, he turns all sorts of things upside down. And then as he shares with the disciples, I didn't actually just come for you all. I came for something much bigger. I came for the world. And as he tells the disciples now, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. And they're like, uh, the Samaritans as well? Yes, the Samaritans. The Gentiles too? Yes, the Gentiles. And the gospel goes out and the Gentiles start entering into the story because the gospel is not just for the Jewish people. That creates quite a dilemma, doesn't it? Now, the dilemma wasn't giant, and I'll tell you why. Throughout Jewish history, there were people that converted to Judaism, okay? So there might be somebody who was a Gentile and unclean, and they looked at the Jewish people, and they looked at the Jewish God, the God we serve, and they were like, man, he's super cool, and you're super cool. Can I become Jewish? And there was a way to do that. So when you converted to Judaism before Jesus, here's how that worked. The first thing you'd have to do is you'd have to be circumcised if you were one of the males in the system, right? If you were the head of your home or the boys, you were circumcised. Why were you circumcised? Because now that you've become Jewish, you are Jewish and you belong to God because of circumcision, right? Then you'd have to be taught the law and then you'd have to live by the law. So if you were someone that converted, what we're watching is, are you circumcised? Do you have the law? And are you doing the things of the law? Do you see now why when the Gentiles first entered the church under Christ in the New Testament, a lot of the Jewish people went, welcome, welcome, you're awesome, fist pump. First thing, we're going to get you circumcised. And then Paul's like, no, no. And they're like, yes, because that's how it's always worked. And, and uh, hey, now that we got you circumcised, okay, maybe we'll skip the circumcision thing. Tad confused about that, but at least we can give you the law and you can start eating like us. Do you see why that was such an obvious and easy entry point in? And so the gospel's going, hold on a second, this is not how it works. So Paul, as are some of the other authors in the New Testament, Paul now in the book of Romans is writing into a context where the Jews and the Gentiles are together in the church they are under the church now, the unification of the church. The gospel has unified the Jews and the Gentiles under one banner, the church of Jesus Christ, and it is by faith. Paul in chapter one of the book of Romans said, are the Gentiles actually what we thought they were? Uh, pagan, ungodly, unrighteous, unclean sinners. You're confused, aren't you? The answer is yes, they are, okay? You're like, can we say that? Yes, uh, Romans chapter one said it, okay? So it's Bible, so we can say, yes, they are. Check that box, boom. Chapter two, 
Are the Jewish people the righteous, chosen, law-fulfilling, faithful people of God? We didn't check that box, did we? What we found out in chapter 2 is, no, they're not. They're actually just as unrighteous, unclean, pagan as the Gentiles. Even worse, because they had the law. And so you like chapter 2, you're like, oh no. And then chapter 3 was, we've all sinned, folks. We've all sinned. We've all blown it. No, no one is faithful. And so we all have the same need, which is redemption. And that's where he came in in Romans 3.24, that the wages of sin is death to all of us, but the gift of God is from Jesus, right? And then in the rest of chapter 3 in the book of Romans, here's what he says. You all thought that we entered into the justification, the rightness with God through Abraham, circumcision, law, and the works of the law. But actually, we all entered through the same space, which is through faith, right? We believed God's work for us, and we entered into rightness with him by faith, not by works. So, the Jews are no better off than the Gentiles, but the Jews are no worse off than the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are no worse off than the Jews. We have Jesus, we have faith, and under faith, we are united. Pretty awesome, huh? That was chapter three. Woo! Now what does he do in chapter four? This is where it gets so amazing. Okay, so he's gonna elevate what we thought the gospel did, which is unifying the two giant people groups under the banner of Christ. He's gonna elevate that. He's going to amplify it. He's gonna expand it so that what we discover is that we're not just called into unity. We're called into something much bigger than unity, much more beautiful than just unity, and it is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter four. Okay, so Romans chapter four, you got the context now, you understand why the chasm exists, you understand the two conclusions the, the Jewish people had, justification through, through works, not faith, obviously it makes sense, and there are two people groups, those that belong to God, those that don't, those that are clean, those are not, and so you have this, this inequality that exists, right? And then, of course, they had the, the people coming in that converted, and through circumcision and the works of the law, they were allowed in. Now, here's the deal. Just one little side note before I read the next sentence, okay? When someone converted in times before Jesus, depending on their circumstances and where they converted from, it would matter how many generations would have to pass before their children's 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 children could enter the temple. So there was always this, a convert was circumcised and had the law and lived by the law, but they didn't have Abraham. So they weren't blood. And because they weren't blood, they were with the Jewish people. They were like the Jewish people, but they were not equal to the Jewish people. And so when the Gentiles entered the church, we got the brand new church under Christ, we are united under Christ, we are together under Christ, but we are still not equal under Christ. Why? Because the Jewish people had their heritage, their Abraham, their circumcision, their law, they were the people. And the Gentiles, well, they were lucky, right? And, and it's good. I mean, the Jews weren't like mad at them. They were like, fist pump, you're in, well done. But I got Abraham. So watch what Paul's going to do now. He says, look guys, we can't boast in our heritage anymore. That's what he just said. To, to create unity, we can't boast in our, in, 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 our, in our history rather than our heritage, our history. And then he says this in verse 31 of chapter three. Watch this. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? 
So he's saying, by telling you that faith is the way in and that we don't boast in our history, we boast in Christ. We don't boast in our works, we boast in Christ. Does that then eliminate the old system, the old way? Because remember, the Jewish people thought what Paul was saying was this. There was the old way, which was by works you're justified through your ethnicity, circumcision, uh, recipient of the law, and works of the law. Now Jesus came, now there's a new way through faith. That was the thinking. So abandon the old way, enter the new way. But what Paul's about to show them is that what you thought the old way was, it actually wasn't. And when you boast in Christ, you boast in the whole story. Watch. What then, verse 1 of chapter 4, shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, just a little quick translation thing here, because this word is tricky. Uh, You see here what was gained from Abraham. You would think in the English language what we mean by that is, what did we gain from having Abraham as a forefather? You with me? Does it make sense? But the translation here, actually from the Greek, isn't best translated the word gain, because the word gain can mean two things. I got something from it, or I understand something because of it right? And so the best translation here would probably have been, what do we discover or what do we find when we look at our father Abraham, our father of the flesh? In other words, when we look at our history and the beginning of the Jewish nation and the first man that was chosen who started it all, when we look at his life, what do we find about how God has always been working and how does that connect to the idea of faith and living by faith and boasting in Christ through faith? You with me so far? So what do we discover by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he was made right with God because he was awesome and faithful, he has something to boast about. Does it make sense? If you or I or Abraham do the right thing, we're faithful, we fulfill whatever God wanted us to fulfill, and because we did, God says, well done, you are faithful, you can be right with me now. Who gets to boast in that? Well, you do, because you did the work, and you got, you, it's kind of me saying, well, I, I was faithful, were you faithful, you weren't faithful, well, no wonder God doesn't bless you. He blesses me because I was faithful. We boast in that. So if Abraham was justified by works, then he would have reason to boast. He would say, I was, I was faithful, so God was faithful to me. But look what he says. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So he's slipping that in there. He may have some things to boast, but he's not going to be boasting before God. Why not? Watch. Take a look now. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you know when this occurred? This was Genesis chapter 15. So Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out and says, come with me, we're gonna gonna go, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. And in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham kind of figures it all out and he goes like this. He says to God, "Um, excuse me, but um, I'm super old and my wife is super old and you said this whole thing about a beautiful nation emerging out of me. Should I pick one of my servants and like give them my inheritance because I don't actually have a son? That was in Genesis chapter 15. And you know what God said to him? Abraham, come outside. And they walked outside. I'll read it to you in a few minutes. And he looked up and he said, you see all the stars? Can you count them? Can you count them? Well, listen, I am going to give you an heir 
so you don't have to worry about getting a servant and doing all that. I'm gonna give you an heir. And by the time I'm done, a nation will, you'll be the father of more people than you can count in the stars. And when God said that to Abraham, as old as he was and as old as his wife was and as far past the childbearing years as they were, here's what Abraham said. He said, you know, I believe you. I believe you're gonna do that. And that's where this verse is found. Abraham believed God and God credited that to him as righteousness. So what did Abraham do to make that story happen? Nothing at this point, nothing. He did nothing. He simply believed that someone else was gonna do it. Who was gonna do it? God, you see, Abraham's saying, I certainly can't do it. I mean, look at me. But I believe you, and I believe you can do it. And so God is saying there's something that's gonna happen that you can't do for yourself, but I'm gonna do it for you. And Abraham went, I believe you. And God said that, that moment, that decision, that effect is what was accredited to Abraham as righteousness. Nothing Abraham has yet done has been righteous, except that Abraham simply believed that God was going to fulfill his promise. You with me so far? So he says this in, uh, in Romans uh, chapter four. L listen now. Verse four. Now to the one who works, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. What, what is Paul saying here? Well, if, if I'm gonna work for you to earn something, let's say you say, hey, Renaud, could you come and do some yard work for me? And, and I say, sure, and you go, I'll pay you 10 bucks an hour, and it's about five hours of work, and I work for five hours, and then you give me my $50, right? Do I go, thank you, this is unexpected, this is beautiful, I had no idea I was gonna get, no, I go, thanks, in fact, I count it. And if it's $40, I go, actually, I worked five hours. Because if I'm going to work for something, then when I'm done working, whatever is due me for that work is due me. So if salvation, if the promises of God were ours because of our faithfulness, then when we were faithful, God would not gift us with salvation. He would not gift us with these promises. He would owe us salvation, and he would owe us his promises. He would be indebted to us. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, guys, you haven't thought this through. If we actually do this by works, then God stands indebted to us. And when we receive the gift of salvation or we receive the gift of his promises, we don't receive a gift. We receive our due payment. And that's not how it rolled, is it? Now take a look. Look what he says next. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but, look at this, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, what did he just do? Watch what he just did. He tied some things together. He said, for the person who works at something and then gets paid, that's not a gift. But for the person who doesn't work but believes that the one who hired him is going to do the work for him. Do you see what he just did? He literally said, for the person that believes he can't do the work and that the person telling him he will do the work is going to fulfill it, to that person he receives righteousness. It makes no sense. It's like saying, I get hired, and the guy says, I want you uh, to, to, to get all this sand into that space, but you can't do it, so I'm going to do it for you, and when I'm done doing it for you, I'm going to pay you. <laughs> and then this is what he said. When the person goes, I believe you, then you are paid. <laughs> That's so crazy. 
Okay, so that's what he's saying. Because he wants to make sure that we understand that what God has done for us is not due payment, it is a gift. And so justification by works cannot make sense. And Abraham was not justified by works, he was justified by faith. So when they thought there was an old system, and now we've got the new system in Jesus, there was no old system. The old system is the new system. They just misunderstood it. Now take a look. Oh, we're not even close to done. This gets so good. Okay, watch this. So, uh, to the one who does not work but believes that he justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Now, this is an interesting switch. He switches from Abraham to David. Of the, of the famous Jewish people in the Jewish calendar of history, there are probably three that rise to the surface. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Moses, the great redeemer out of slavery. And King David, the one who is the line by which the Messiah will come. And so these are the big three, right? And David, being so famous, was famous for his incredible faithfulness, right? He was David and Goliath, remember that? He believed God in the whole Goliath thing and he stood strong when Saul was going nuts and he did all these awesome things and so they really looked at David as the man after God's own heart. If you're gonna live a life like somebody, live a life like David's. And so here's what, here's what Paul's doing. Abraham was not accredited with righteousness because of works. He was accredited with righteousness because he believed God. The system's always been by faith, not by works. David, in fact, who you thought was like super faithful, uh, honestly, he wasn't all the time, and we kind of know that, but we pretend he was. But David understood this, and so in his own writing, David said it. So David writes the Psalms, and listen to what he said in the Psalms, verse seven. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not call, uh, uh, count his sins. So, so David says, what I love about God is not that I was awesome and God owes me faithfulness. What I love about God is that I was not awesome and God didn't count it against me. And so he's saying, do you, do you understand that your entire history that I've just told you not to buy into as a boast because you're better than the Gentiles, your entire history is a story of people believing God and that being credited to them as righteousness, not a story of people working for God and that being credited to them as righteousness. So what Jesus has displayed and done for you is not new. It has been the story all along. Okay, that's pretty awesome, right? Okay, now. Watch what he does next. This is crazy. This is where everything gets elevated. Ready? <clears throat> Verse nine. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? What blessing are we talking about? Well, the blessing that your righteousness would be credited to you as, uh, as righteousness because of your faith. Is that only for the Jewish people because Abraham was the father of the Jewish people and he did it and so they are the recipients of it. Is this only for the circumcised, this blessing that God would cover their sins despite their unfaithfulness? Okay, watch this, watch this. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So that's the blessing. Abraham, our forefather, received righteousness on account of his belief in God that God would make things right. So this promise that Abraham received, or this, this gift rather that Abraham received, is it a gift for the Jewish people or for everyone? So Abraham received it, watch this now, watch this now, 
How then was it counted to him? What does that mean? What do you mean, how was it counted to him? We just answered that question. He believed God. No, 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 Paul doesn't mean how. He actually means when. Watch, watch. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Do you see what just happened in the room? You just went, whoa, hold on. You're trying to remember, aren't you? Did it happen before or after? Did it happen? See, if you were Jewish in the Roman church and this was just read, you're panicking. <laughs> right now, you're like, wait, wait, don't go there. I can't handle it. Why? Because something is emerging that you've never thought about before. And you've always thought Abraham was whose father? Was the Jewish people's father. He was the, he was the Jew of all Jews, right? And so here's what, here's what Paul just said. Did anybody, anybody remember exactly when God made him righteous because of his faith? Was it, was it before the covenant of circumcision, which makes him belong, makes him Jewish, and sets up the entire system on which you have had your boast all along? Hmm. So let's go back. Chapter 12 of Genesis, which comes before 15, right? Chapter 12, God invites Abraham to follow him because he will fulfill great promises through him that will bless who? All nations, Okay. Okay, chapter 15, that comes after 12, but before 17, okay? Chapter 15, chronologically, God makes the promise to Abraham that he will give him a son, and Abraham believes God, and it is credited to him as righteousness. Now wait for it. Chapter 17, which comes after 15, chronologically, God says to Abraham, you belong to me, I want you to be circumcised and circumcise all your children from here on forward. Wait for it now. When Abraham became righteous through faith, did he have circumcision? No. Did he have the law? No. Did he have the works of the law? No. Was he a Jew? <laughs> if he wasn't a Jew, what was he? A Gentile. A Gentile, an unclean pagan dog. Do you understand what just happened? Here's what Paul just told the, the, the Jewish people. Your father, Father Abraham, the circumcised, faithful man that set the entire thing up. When God made him righteous, he was more Gentile than Jew. He wasn't your father yet. He was theirs. Because God said, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And so when God makes him righteous, he's a Gentile. So who is the recipient then of this great promise? Who is the recipient of this great blessing? The blessing that righteousness will be counted to us, not because of our works, but because our faith and trust in God. It is not only for the Jews. In fact, in fact, it's more for the Gentiles than even the Jews because Abraham was a Gentile before he became a Jew. Now watch this. He actually says that. I didn't have to make that up. Take a look at this. Watch this. So, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. I love that Paul does that. He didn't say it was before. I love, you see, Paul has a sense of humor. It wasn't after. Give you a clue. <laughs> your only option is it was before, okay? Because you're hoping. But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that had been that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. 
The purpose was, watch this now, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Abraham is not primarily the father of the Jewish people. Abraham is primarily the father of the gospel people. People who by faith believed God and they became righteous because they believed God. He is for us all. So when you boast in Christ, Paul says to the Jewish people, you boast in Abraham. You boast in Moses. You boast in the whole story because the whole story's been the same story all along. A story of us not being able to do it and now God saying, I will do it and pay you anyway and my payment will not be what is due you because you deserve it. It will be a gift to you because you don't deserve it. And you will live in me because I am good. And that whole story was not for Jewish people or Gentile people. It was for all people. And so this becomes the story. Now watch. He actually goes on and says this in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherence of the law who are the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see, this is Paul nailing the last nail in and saying this. Look guys, here's the truth. If this was about us doing works and earning God's faithfulness, then all of God's promises in Genesis chapter 12 that he would make a great nation that would bless all nations would be void. Because he couldn't do that because he wouldn't be blessing all nations. In fact, he wouldn't even be blessing one nation because they would be unfaithful and then he would be unfaithful to them because they would deserve it and they would not be the recipients of his promise of righteousness nor would the Gentiles and the entire promise would fall apart and the entire reality of faith would be null. So it's either by faith or it's by nothing. And Abraham is either our father or he is no one's father. It's beautiful. See, This is a big deal to us in the church today. This should be a big deal to us. And you know why? Because functionally as human beings, like the Jewish people who were bred for so many centuries to look at what they have and look at what they're the recipients of and look at how they live and compare it to others and then go, we are superior to them. We have done exactly the same thing because we're human. We're human. You You guys remember junior high? Oh gosh. I just undid seven years of counseling for you. I know. You were like, it came back. They took seven years to bury that stuff. I know. Do you remember, do you remember junior high? So you go into junior high, first day of junior high, okay? You, you are part of a school of other junior hires. You're all in the same school. Isn't that fun? And you all have the same school colors. Isn't that fun? And you all have the same school mascot. Isn't that fun? And you all have the same school sports team. Isn't that fun? And you all root for the same stuff. Yay. But are you equal to the other junior hires? Uh-uh, you might be unified, but you ain't equal. So you walk in, and do you remember this? The junior high lunchroom. Oh, first day, junior high lunchroom, what do you do? You get your lunch, and then you turn, and there are tables, tables everywhere, all over the place. And you have to sit at one of them. Do you remember the feeling? It's coming back to you, isn't it? So what are you doing? You're quickly doing the math, right? Who dresses like me? 
who looks like me. That table doesn't look very popular. If I sit there, then I won't be popular. That table looks too popular. If I sit there, they'll reject me day one. Then I won't be popular. Then I have to sit at that table, which isn't popular, and that's not going to be good. As a matter of fact, Dave, one of the pastors here, he told me the story where his daughter just recently went to junior high. So he says to her, on the first day, the lunchroom's super scary. Just grab your tray, pick a table, walk over there, sit down, say, can I sit here? And sit down, it'll be okay. And so she grabbed the tray, and she walked over, and she walked to the first table she found. She said, can I sit here? And the little girl nodded, and she sat down, put her tray down, and she said, hi, how are you all? And they all only spoke Spanish. So then she couldn't go because that would be odd. That would send the wrong message. So she sat in silence for the rest of the lunch and the next week she sat alone, right? That's junior high, isn't it? But the truth is, it starts in junior high and it never ends, does it? It never ends. We live with comparing ourselves to the external realities of the people around us. We, we all have physical appearances, and so each culture determines what they view as beautiful or not beautiful, depending on the culture you're in. It changes dramatically, right? And then whatever culture you're in, uh, you either fit the mold of beautiful or you don't fit the mold of beautiful, and then immediately there's a scale. Or intelligence, they measure intelligence. Well, uh, the intelligence level of a person in a tribal culture plays out very differently than a person in an urban culture, right? And so depending on which culture you live in will depend on whether your intelligence is valuable, your type of intelligence, and then you will be scaled. Uh, we do it with talents and gifts. We say, well, how gifted are you and what are you gifted in? And if it's not valuable in your particular cultural context, well, then it scales. So everything scales all the time. And so we find ourselves constantly in the world we live in, constantly comparing ourselves to each other and determining where we fit in the scale and whether we are superior to somebody around us or inferior to them. And that is our entire life. A constant scaling of inferior, superior, inferior, superior. And then here's what we do. We get into the church united in Christ. Same school, same banner, same colors, same sports team, right? Essentially same mission, same vision, same gospel. But we come in here and nothing changes in terms of equality. Unified but not equal. It just changes in terms of the game, right? Have you ever gone to a missional community and sat down and you quickly realize everybody there knows the Bible really well and you don't? Do you speak up or do you go silent? Well, you're inferior, so you go silent, right? Or you speak up and then immediately show everybody else that they are superior, right? <laughs> Have you ever walked into church and you realize that there are certain uh, positions that seem to be superior, and so you, you chase after those because they are superior, and if you don't get them, then you are inferior, because our positions are not positions that God gives us for the sake of the body. We equate them to inferior, superior. That's what we do. And so our entire lives in the church context is the same way, isn't it? And then the gospel comes along to us. The great work of Jesus Christ. And he says, listen, here's the deal. Not only am I unifying you under one banner of faith. That's a powerful thing that the gospel has done, isn't it? taken all of us and unified us under faith, but I'm going to do more than that. Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3 taught us something, didn't it? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What do we have in common, folks? Sin, okay? And the gift of God is salvation to all who believe. If we know Jesus, what else do we have in common? We're rescued, right? Here's what we have in common. We've all sinned, regardless of your personality or your amazing giftingness or your lack thereof or your amazing beauty or your lack thereof in our cultural context or your amazing intelligence or your lack thereof or your amazing position or your lack thereof 
or your ethnicity, whether you're a minority or a majority, whether you have a hard history or an awesome history, whether you've suffered more than everybody else or less than everybody else. No matter all of that stuff, we have this in common. Sin and rescue. And under the banner of Jesus, here's what he says. All those things that used to measure you and scale you, they were never meant to measure or scale you. They were never meant to. When you come into God's space with your little tray and you go, who am I and where do I sit? Here's what God shows you in the gospel. There's only one table. There's only one table. And there's a lot of chairs. And they're all the same height. And they're all about the same distance from Jesus. And we all just get to sit down. And then we look around and we're like, hey, what's up? And then he goes, here you're equal. Because faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel, is the great equalizer and the great uniter. We are not just united, but we are equal. And so we ought to start behaving that way. I am the same as you and you are the same as me insofar as sin and rescue is concerned. And so our equality is found in Christ. And watch now, watch now. When we recognize what the gospel has done for us, what Jesus has done in his work, that he has equalized us, then we recognize this. We are united in Christ. We are equal in Christ. And so our, un our unity and our equality leaves only one who is supreme, one who is higher, and that is Christ. And so our equality and our unity displays Christ's supremacy. And then watch. We'll get to this later in Romans, but I'm gonna give you a clue. He then says, now, you're still different, right? Because you didn't suddenly become equal because I eliminated your differences. You're still different. You still have different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different personalities, different giftings, different, but your differences now aren't what measure you in equality, scale you. Your differences are what make you as a unit, as a community, powerful. Because each of you brings something to the table that somebody else doesn't yet have. And so he says, you are the body of Christ now united in Christ, equalized in Christ, different in Christ, but different for the sake of the community of God and the glory of God, not different for the sake of scaling on who is superior and who is inferior. We scale wrongly. Fix our eyes on Jesus and we will scale rightly and we will all be here equal and united. That's why Jesus said, they will know you by your love for each other. And we cannot love each other if we think of ourselves as superior or inferior to each other. We can only love each other when we realize we are equal under Christ and equal in faith. Equal under Christ and equal in faith. United under Christ and united in faith. Praise God. Let's pray. God, you are so good, so ridiculously good that you have allowed us the privilege to be the recipients of your grace and mercy. Not a payment due us because we've been faithful, but a gift given us because you are faithful. And that in giving that gift to all of us that know you now, we realize that we all had the same problem, sin, and we've all been rescued by the same grace, you. So now we stand united 
and we stand equal so that only you stand sovereign and only you stand superior. Help us to live this out. Help us to find in ourselves the places where we think too little of ourselves because we've compared ourselves to others who we think are superior. And help us to seek out the places where we think too much of ourselves because we've compared ourselves to others and we think of ourselves as superior. And help us to remember that we, we the people of God, are equal and united because we are all the recipients of your grace and mercy. And now God, unite us in our equality and use our differences and our diversity to make this community more beautiful and powerful than ever before so that people would see you in us and know you because of our love for each other. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.